0: everyone. Welcome to season two of Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. I'm really excited about this season. We have six brand new episodes where we talk to Canadian nonfiction writers, and some of them even dabble in fiction, and all of them will tell us about their writing lives. On today's show, we talk to Jen Thornhill Verma. Jen is a journalist and graduate of the King's Creative Nonfiction MFA. Her recent book, Cod Collapse, The Rise and Fall of Newfoundland's Saltwater Cowboys, was published by Nimbus in 2019, and was listed as one of the best Canadian nonfiction books of that year by The Hill. Fueling her writing on nature, the environment, and the fishing industry of the Atlantic Provinces is her extensive scientific background. She also holds a Master's of Science in Medicine from Memorial University. Jen has written for many major publications including The Globe and Mail, Reader's Digest, The Independent, and Saltscapes, and was a silver finalist for Best Profile article in both 2019 and 2020 at the Atlantic Journalism Awards. If that weren't enough, she has also worked in film and as a healthcare executive, and she's a landscape painter, for which she has also won awards. Amidst all of this, she made time to talk to us here at Further Reading to discuss craft, writing about home, and putting years of research into book form. Hi Jen, welcome to Further Reading. Hi Jillian, thanks for having me. Well, I'm very excited to talk to you. We are both graduates of the King's MFA program, though I don't think we overlapped in our time there. Maybe we just missed each other. I think so. I
1: graduated in 2019 and it had been a little break since I'd i been there because I graduated in 2002 as well from a different program.
0: Oh, oh right. I forgot you were there earlier. <laughs> yeah so we did just miss each other which is too bad but you're you're sort of famous in the king's program for the way you uh really tackled your book and you were doing lots of other stuff at the same time um and the speed with which you managed to bring your book into the world so i'm excited to talk to you about that but why don't we go back to the beginning to get things going and talk about how you decided to enter the world of writing what brought you to it
1: I think what brought me to it was it just seemed to be a place I felt at home. You know, I was trying to think about when did I even start writing stories and my my parents tell me that, you know, from the minute I could write, I was crafting stories, which I want to believe is, you know, partially the Newfoundlander and Labradorian in me because I think there's such great Mm -hmm. evocative storytellers there in any case, telling a good yarn, but I, you know, keeping a diary, all those things, I just remember that I could find a quiet place and collect my thoughts. And often I could articulate on paper that, which was a little bit more tricky to articulate verbally. Um, And so I think that's probably how it started. And later I was attracted to journalism. So I've always sort of lived in the nonfiction space just because I thought, you know, it's rare to be able to uh, hear true stories that you just almost can't believe that they're true, and I, you know, I didn't feel the need to delve into fiction because I felt there was so much to to work with in in true stories. So I, just just from a natural place of curiosity, I think, and also this desire. I mean, all of my work has really been in an effort to try to make something that I think is really important. Interesting and a pleasure for people to to learn about. So, writing has just been a, a venue that's allowed me to to do
0: that, to pursue that. Hmm. And and you have a science background as well. So how does that play into it? I do. I I think
1: the the constant in my education and my professional career is that I've I've just always been interested in sciences and and math and you know facts and figures but trying to figure out a way to relay that in a way that communicates its importance. So I have a background in journalism, but also biology. And then that dovetailed into a master's of science and medicine, which later led to a master's of fine arts and creative nonfiction. And, you know, most of my stories, I definitely tap into that kind of critical appraisal skills I learned from the science side, but then also the kind of narrative and being able to tell the, the human perspective from the creative writing and, and journalism side. So I found them quite good companions, the science and the writing.
0: Well, science really does seem to be all about telling stories, right? It's it's sort of the way we tell ourselves the story about the, our stories about the world and, and how we understand, especially how the natural world works. We have to kind of put it into terms that we as humans understand. Is that, is that how you think?
1: I think so. And I, I think that often science is used to shut down conversation you know certainly in the area in which i work i've started to focus more on climate issue and environment natural resources and you know the types of stakeholders you have involved in that on the one hand you might have those who are availing of those resources like fishermen and those who are studying them like scientists and so you can often find this divide where a new paper comes out and suddenly it shuts down the perspective of the everyday a person who spends their time, you know, boots and boats and harbors, where, say, for example, northern cod are still nowhere near they once were from a standpoint of abundance, and science weights one of those stakeholders' perspectives more important than the other. But I think what I what I appreciate in the time period that I've been involved in both of those worlds is that I've seen a greater appreciation and reverence for those who do have those boots in the boats. I mean this in the same way that in healthcare you'd almost never undertake a study without involving a patient or family member because who understands better that experience than somebody who is living with a particular disease or condition? And I I think in the same way, you know, there's there's something to be said for being able to communicate and translate simply that which is complicated oftentimes in science, but it's the only way I think we're going to be able to get to a future possible when it comes to, you know, the situation we're in with the climate crisis. Um, we have to be able to make this scientific language everyday language. And that's, I think, what really motivates me across all of the the work
0: that I do. Hmm. So you're functioning almost as a translator at this particular moment.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because in my in my day jobs, I've been called everything from a, you know, communication specialist to a knowledge translator, and I do think that there's an element of of translation there. Um and it helped me, I think, to tackle the book that I wrote as part of the MFA program about the East Coast cod fishery collapse because I needed to understand, you know, what did the science say and and how has that science changed, which it's changed a lot in the past 30 years. So you know, being able to kind of understand what constitutes good parameters for evidence and where to find good evidence, those kind of what I like to call bullshit meter skills have come in really, <laughs> really handy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the titles have changed, but I think I think ultimately, yeah, I live in a world of trying to translate.
0: Wow. So how has that played out in your work? Tell us a bit about your professional career uh, as a writer.
1: Yeah, so as a writer, I over the past few years, I've since, during and since writing the book, because in the early part of my career, I did work in, in radio, and then I kind of shifted gears and worked in a non governmental organization, and very much have have enjoyed that time. But the last few years, I've spent much more time working as a professional writer and journalist, and I would say even even more recently, I'm uh, I'm getting comfortable calling myself an investigative journalist. Because I do spend a lot of time, you know, when I think about the work that's involved in getting to a story, it's, to me, it's about going to the paper, talking to to people and, and visiting places. And I spend a lot of time in the paper, the documentation, kind of crunching numbers, trying to visualize data that often exists, trying to understand how to give different weight to different types of research, evidence, some that lends insights to a very local situation, whereas others that offer a more global standpoint. And in the work that I've been doing as of late, I, I often start with a real appreciation for, well, what does the research say about, you know, northern cod and their trajectory and their abundance over the past 30? Uh, and now actually we can we can look back 500 years for that particular population in the area of Newfoundland and Labrador. But I really want to try to understand what the data is is telling us, and then to spend some time thinking about, you know, how to personalize that, um, how is that information impacting people still today? Um, and so I think if you look at some of my more recent bylines, you'll see this combination of digging into and a real appreciation for what's available in the research evidence, but then also some helpful narrative entry points that kind of contextualize what that means for people who, you know, live and work and thrive on the coastlines of Canada.
0: Hmm. That's, that's great that your work has taken this direction. And so you're, you're working as a, a freelance journalist at this point. Yes,
1: I do. I work as a freelance journalist and I predominantly work on long form pieces. So newspaper, magazine, uh, you know, for for one standpoint, I like that because it allows me to go deep on a particular topic. The other reason I like it is it, it just makes sense uh, given, you know, mom of three young kids, uh, mm-hmm. also the times we live in where we're kind of, we have to uh, work from place very often given the pandemic. So it just allows me a bit of a longer time trajectory to do that background research and um, tell a, a deeper a deeper story than I think is often told in in some of these areas that relate to fisheries and environment.
0: Mm, okay, so I really wanted to get into your process. And maybe this is the the nice way into that. You recently published uh, a long form piece in the Globe and Mail called Scapegoat or Scoundrel about uh, the role of seals in our ecosystems. Um, And to me, that's a great example that sort of uh, illustrates everything you've been talking about thus far. So maybe take us through the process of that piece from the initial idea, how the idea came to you, through to the pitching, the research and the eventual writing and, and editing of it.
1: Yeah, that's a great example because I'd had that example in my head for, I want to say, a few years. Um, because of course, being from Newfoundland Labrador, you you you're just you're the the idea of seals as scapegoats or scoundrels is 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 ever present. It's it's in the news quite readily, because on the one hand, the fishermen see seals as scoundrels; they're eating all their catch. And on the other hand, you've got scientists saying, "Well, the seals are being scapegoated because actually the problems you're pointing to, seals aren't the problem." And you know, they're saying that it's the climate crisis and changes in the ecosystem. And so, I'd had that in my mind for a while, and, and the reason wasn't wasn't just because I felt like there was a good opportunity to dig in and say, "Well, what is the what does the research say?" And you know, what's myth and what's fact but because I thought that that story held a lot of significance culturally and for community in Newfoundland and Labrador. So I the reason why I pitched it when I did was because the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada had opted to host a technical briefing and, on this topic of seals versus ecosystems. And they kind of framed it as seals and ecosystems because they were saying, look, the problems for which people are attributing to seals, um, it's really a factor of the ecosystem changes that we're seeing as a result of the climate crisis and climate change. And that in and of itself was newsworthy that they'd hosted this technical briefing because just for context, typically Fisheries and Oceans Canada, which is responsible for The management, but also the protection of of, um, marine species coast to coast to coast, they typically only host those technical briefings in advance of decisions, fisheries management decisions. So for example, you can expect to go to a northern cod briefing uh, to learn about the status of the various populations around Newfoundland and Labrador of northern cod, Atlantic cod, and then within a couple months or so, the same Department of Fisheries and Oceans will release this year's uh, quota or total allowable catch for that particular population. And, and people will have a sense of where those numbers came from because it's in part informed by what the science says. In this case, they they just hosted a technical briefing. Um, and so it was unlike any other technical briefing that they'd hosted. The other thing that was different about it was that It was particularly hosted for the news media. And so I, having learned that and having started to already build a bit of a file around the SEALs issue, I had pitched an editor I'd already worked with, with the Globe and Mail and said, look, this is happening. This is why this is important. You know, it's another opportunity to kind of relay what the best available science says Um, and gave him a little bit more perspective, but also was able to to promise and deliver that I could chat with both scientists and fishermen, um, among others who who weighed into that story. And so I think the ability to be able to relay a a story that uh, is very relevant on the East Coast of Canada and is of interest to people, not only in Canada, but internationally. I mean, seals, it's so interesting. I learned through the course of writing this Story that in the first few years of the Trudeau government, uh, they uh, the PMO's office, Prime Minister's office, had received more correspondence on seals than any other topic. Like climate change was further down the line.
0: That's um, amazing it, to me.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> and I and I and I know it had more to do with um, you know with the livelihood and protection of seals versus the seal hunt and that kind of thing. But but clearly, it's it's one of these topics where you know, it's, there's, there's a bubbling. People really care on both sides of this debate. And um, I liked it because I was able to really dig into the science, which I think is actually quite tangly. Um, I think Fisheries and Oceans Canada wanted to be able to portray that in a much sharper way to say that, you know, definitively seals aren't, aren't the problem that you say they are. Um, ultimately, I took away from that, that we are spending a lot of time talking about seals, and we need to really move on the climate agenda in fisheries if we're really going to be able to have sustainable fisheries in, into the future. But you know, it gave me an opportunity to dig into that, not only reveal what the science says, but also to be able to share importantly the perspective of the fishermen and those whose livelihoods are affected by this and, and be able to relay their perspectives. And that was really crucial and, and important to me
0: hmm And how do you, in the process of writing, I'm, I'm going to come back to some elements of your process in a minute, but I just am curious, since you're talking about trying to position yourself in between those two um, groups that are in, often in opposition to each other, how does that writing process feel to you as you go through it? Do you find yourself leaning toward one side or the other or wanting to act as a translator from one side to the other? Um, is it, does it become difficult to main that kind of impartiality?
1: I think, you know, it's interesting. People have asked me this before, and I, 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 ten, I feel like my bias is I, w- I want to be as reliant on what the best available evidence says, understanding that that evidence changes. You know, it was only a couple of years ago that um, new modeling science was able to demonstrate the real impacts that overfishing served leading up to the 1992 Cod Moratorium. Now, there was lots of perspectives and thinking that that, of course, was the cause. Uh, but the best available evidence, really, only last few years has has been able to definitively, I think, point to that and and validate and confirm that in a way that is is pretty undeniable. And you know that's where I always want to be able to come back to. And as I was mentioning earlier about how sometimes I think research and science is is used like it's all a level playing field, like all research is good research, and and that's not the case, right? I mean, some mm-hmm. research is peer reviewed and some some's not. Uh, some is synthesis that looks at everything that is known about a particular question and considers it as a whole other research evidence is quite local context and helpful, but, but isn't helpful for providing a generalized or global perspective. So I think at the end of the day, I want to be able to relay what is the state of the science and also to be able to relay that the people that are involved, you know, in this particular case, they, they all do have their own biases, right? I mean, fishermen do want to be able to fish. This is their livelihood. Uh, scientists uh, who work in Fisheries and Oceans Canada are trying to think about what's sustainable over the course of of many years, not just from one fishing season to the next. And so being able to relay that kind of complicated Um, relationship and history, but in a narrative way that, uh, you know, what I wanted to be able to do in that particular case is while there is often a lot of tension between those particular groups also to show that there's common ground. So like the common ground in that particular case is while, you know, on the one hand, you can't find necessarily a lot of agreement on the uh, case of seals, whether they're scapegoats or scoundrels, where you do find a lot of agreement is that everyone agrees that the changes in the Northwest Atlantic are undeniable. It's warming. There's less sea ice. There's a greater tendency for it to be stormy in those parts, which makes an already dangerous job, all the more dangerous. And so everyone, the scientists and the fishermen agree, there has to be more work put into understanding the ecosystem changes for the fish, for the fishing, and and also for the fishing communities. And so I think when I read the other stories that have been published, about seals and ecosystems, they were almost laid out as a myth-busting. You know, fishermen say this, scientists say that, scientists say this, fishermen say this. Certainly I did that too. That's part of the narrative. But I also wanted to be able to point to a future possible that's really solutions-driven. So I think, you know, the two factors that, that I think about when I'm writing a story is, you know, is it evidence-based and can we point to helpful direction for, for future um, and of course, none of this is my opinion. It's really driven by the the sources and the people, the documents um, that I'm able to talk to and, and learn about.
0: Wow. Yeah. So then with that in mind, did you automatically think of the Globe and Mail or how do you go about choosing a publication to pitch to when you have a story like this? Well, I,
1: I try to with my writing to, to goal sets. So a few years ago, my goal was I, you know, knowing that I was going to have a, a steady day job and that I'm, I'm professionally sort of freelance writing about half of my time, um, that I wanted to be able to be working on something in my field of interest at any given time. That was kind of the first goal that I'd, I'd started. And now I'm at a place where, and there's been a few different milestones along the way where, I had gotten to a place where I could pitch successfully within the Atlantic Canadian media and get stories picked up. And more recently I've said to myself, look, these stories that are happening on the East coast or in coastal parts of, of Canada are relevant across the country and in some cases internationally. And so the degree to which I can relay a story that might be happening you know, off of Northern Labrador in a national newspaper, I think is really critical because, you know, one of the points I wanted to make when I wrote the book Cod Collapse was this happens to be a story about Northern cod in Newfoundland, Labrador, but it it could be Pacific salmon off the coast of BC. It could be Arctic char. Uh, It could also be Portuguese sardines, you know? So I, I, I knew that there were stories that held relevance that were too often passed off um, as something that happened over there and couldn't possibly happen over here but you know more often than not that I've spent time really stewing and thinking about the 1992 cod moratorium when the federal government closed the the east coast cod fishery really because of they had there was no other choice uh, I can see that that important time in in Canadian history and in international history we still have to learn the lessons from that and you know, the degree to which I can help to relay that message through, through other stories. I, I really want to try to do that. So now I'm, I'm motivated by writing longer form pieces uh, in national um, newspapers and magazines. I'll still certainly retain and I'll continue to write for Atlantic Canadian uh, media. And I, and I love doing that, but that's kind of been the, the trajectory of how I think about where, all pitch, um, whether it's regional or, or national in focus.
0: Hmm. So then how many stories do you have going in your head at once? Would you say? Ooh,
1: probably too many. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: as any good writer does. I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, it's funny because this has been a real transition year where, uh, this is my second piece for the golden mail and I'm writing a couple pieces for the narwhal and, I've got a piece I'm working on for Canadian Geographic. And, you know, there had been um, stories I'd just started to be able to get traction in, in the right venues nationally. But I think leading up to that, I just, you know, I wanted to be writing and I wanted to to get the stories that were coming my way out there in the universe. And so, you know, just kind of saying yes to everything and picking up everything. And And now I just want to be a lot more discerning about how I spend my time, um, you know, the piece that I was able to write for the Globe and Mail back in in March of 2021, I, I think uh, is, is probably uh, has the most to say about what we've learned in the last three decades from the COD moratorium than, than anything else that's out there right now. Um, you know, so I, I, that's the kind of stories that I, I want to be able to write that have more runway that allow me to go deeper, further, uh, to, to garner more perspectives, to be able to do some deep dives into what the research and evidence says, but to do it in a way that's, you know, I hope a, a pleasure for people to read and, and to learn about. And that just takes more time. So, you know, my goal is kind of like how the fishery in Newfoundland Labrador, the cod fishery moved from fish sticks to fillets. I want to try to move from mm-hmm. uh, quantity to quality. <laughs> nice
0: analogy (laughs) I like that (laughs) Uh, but it is really inspiring because I think so often when we kind of start off in the field we writers tend to think I'm going to write this big piece it's going to generate a ton of attention and I'm going to get a book deal and it's just going to happen like that and you do have to have an element of that to be motivated and to aspire to something Um, But that is the rare case that that happens. And in fact, what you're doing and and have done by building slowly and regionally and and sort of growing and then becoming more discerning with the longer pieces that you're choosing tends to be a a much more kind of surefire way of not only growing your craft, but then, of course, you know, um, uh, expanding your profile. Um, So it's nice to hear that that's what you've done and, and that it's worked. It's a good formula.
1: Well, and I definitely learned that in the Masters of Fine Arts because, you know, when I had started <laughs> the program, I was six months pregnant and we're, we're sitting around and, you know, I learned, well, it's not enough to have this story to tell. It's like, well, why are you the person to tell it? And I thought, well, why am I the person to tell it? And that was why I decided, you know, from a platform perspective that what made the most sense was to bank the time and to kind of go back to my journalism roots and to start pitching. And look, I get a lot of no's, but... Uh, I, I tend to think that the doors that open and the yeses that come through are the right ones. And like I said, now I, I'm looking for fewer yeses, but I'm looking for longer runway. And that strategy is helping. And it's funny because now when I think about a future book project, I think I would write it as a series of long form pieces, uh, whereas, you know, uh, certainly I think I did that. The opposite way around with the book where mm-hmm. i i mm-hmm. I wrote the book and I was certainly writing shorter articles throughout the course of writing the book, but I also banked articles after the book was was published. but I see journalists in particular who they work on a story for a considerable amount of time and and that that can become a book project and so the idea of that is really appealing to me that you know when I bank a thirty five hundred or five thousand word piece, well, that, that could be a chapter. Um, and so that's, I think the formula I will take in the future to writing my next book will, will evolve because of, you know, my experience writing the first one, but also transitioning more to journalism.
0: Okay. Now I have to ask the question, what is your next book or do you,
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know, I have a, I have a couple of ideas and, Uh, The obvious and first is that there's really still more to say about the, you know, what's happened to fisheries and wild fisheries, wild fish. And I I think people care about this topic deeply, not just those who who live and, and harvest wild fish, but I've seen lots of evidence that, you know, people are interested in knowing where their food comes from. And, you know, so there's, there's lots of stories in there, but I think that my best way of, of pursuing that line of direction is to continue to work on long form pieces. The other project that I'm working on and I is a, is a departure in many ways, but I guess has some similarities with my first book is a story that's on the maternal side of my family and I'm actually next week. I'm headed up to Labrador. I'm doing some work with the Nunavut Inuit to learn a little bit about how their communities were impacted by the cod moratorium. And and I you know I don't think that um, the sort of indigenous perspectives have yet been been highlighted and and told. And that's not my story to tell. But the invitation to work with them to to tell that that's that's important to me. But while I'm there, it's interesting. I realized I have some roots in Southern Labrador. My my great-grandmother was a maidservant at what is the, the tallest lighthouse in Atlantic Canada in a place called Pointe Uh, And there she uh, got pregnant at a young age, around 16, 17. She gave my grandfather up for adoption. And I'm digging into her story, which is, is just an incredible story where um she learned that her um she learned uh well I just want to go back a sec. It's basically a story about a young woman who faces a lot of adversity in her early life. She gives her her son up for adoption. Yeah, so I'm I'm not quite there yet, but I'm I'm digging into to a family an old family story that I think links to a a bigger story of adventure in in Point of
0: Wow, Jen, that's fascinating. I'm there. <laughs> You've <laughs> sold me on the idea. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's really exciting and and uh, you know, just as you say so rich the 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 sort of figure of the lighthouse, the the things that lighthouses see and the people in them, of course. I love yeah. the idea. Yeah, wow. So, let's let's come back to your um article writing for a moment and then yeah. and then we'll sort of talk about how that compared with book writing. Let's say that you've had a piece picked up uh, by a spot like The Globe and Mail and you have a deadline that's say 6 weeks in advance. Um is is that a sort of typical deadline that you might get from a big publication like that?
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting cuz working with and you know I don't have a huge experience but my my limited experience working with uh, some of the the national publications is especially with the longer stories like they do need a longer trajectory if you're going to fill two print pages that takes a bit of time to get a get a story lined up but you know it's interesting because I one of the things I've learned is when approaching places like the Globe and Mail or even the Narwhal is I I need to make sure that I've got a lot of work already done. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not coming to them with, with an idea and a promise. I'm coming to them with, here's, you know, let me show you and show you a sneak peek into my workbook. Here's some of the work that I already have done. Here's how this picks up from reporting that you may have done. Um, but here's some of the gaps that, you know, people aren't yet talking about and here's why I'm the right person to to write this. Like I'm, I'm coming to them with a pretty tight package and where I often leave, you know, openness and, and liberties is finding the, the right narrative hook. Um, so I've often like done the deep dive into what the documentation is or the data and, uh, I have leads on on getting that narrative hook and kind of contextualizing it in place and with people. But um, I find that in my limited experience that they're really interested to know that, you know, the, uh, the premise of the story and that there's a strong evidence base there and that it will open a perspective that maybe hasn't had the attention that, that it deserves. And so I find that once I've been able to secure the pitch, then we can nail things like the word count and um, what kind of narrative entry point they'd like to see. Like a, using the Globe and Mail a seals example is a good one because the editor had said to me, "You know, can you open with like let's let's really use the seal as the character?" Mm-hmm. And that was a stretch for me. I could see I could see where he was going with that, but um, and later I think we were able to get there by talking about sort of the seal, whether you see him as a scoundrel or as a, as a scapegoat, and there was some characterization of, of the seal in that way. But I thought, you know, I want to stick with the, the human perspective on this. And mm-hmm. um, you certainly do see the value and, and characterization of the seals like throughout the, the story. But that's where I think, um, you know, publications want to be able to put their flavor on it and then think about what's going to be the associated photos and and visuals that will be associated with so I really have to say I'm enjoying that part of working with with bigger publications that that have a budget for photography that Mm -hmm. have a budget and and a space to create visuals and graphics like that's it just adds I think so much value to the overall uh, story and and creates other entry points that otherwise you know people may not have picked it up and, and had to read so Yeah, I think by then I've had a lot of the work done. I'm probably doing a couple of additional interviews and then a fair amount of that um, deadline period is actually me sending drafts and and doing some revisions and then working with other editors. Like maybe it's a photo editor or maybe it's a copy editor or, uh, you know, visuals folks. So it's fun because um, you get to work with, you kind of feel like you're really part of a team in a case like that.
0: Yeah, and it, and it turns into such a big story. Like, I was really taken with the visuals in opening the article and did think it was going to be about a seal. <laughs> you yeah. know, they, yeah. they, they managed to convey that even without your specific character uh, yes. not appearing right away. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it all came together. Yeah, so very like uh, comprehensive creative process in the end.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think like the difference for me is, and I've learned this over the past few years, is that in the beginning i would pitch an idea and i'd talk about you know these are the sources i will talk to i still brought the substance and i still tried to relay why i'm the person to tell the story whereas now and i think it's because i'm banking so many stories in a in a common area i i very often have you know already talked to that person i already have the quote so they're able to see without seeing the full draft of the story they're able to see that the, the core kind of component parts of the story that will come from the pitch.
0: Yeah, that's a really important thing to mention. I think that, you know, if if you do have a thing that is yours, uh, a real passion project that you're following for whatever reason, um, the legwork you're doing all the time is really going to come in handy down the road. And not just as far as proving that you're the person to write about it, but to save yourself time when you do need to find that material. It's It's really important.
1: Absolutely. And it makes organization so important. I used to joke uh, that my, so my, my partner is a physician and studied engineering. And I used to joke that, you know, the difference between us was an Excel spreadsheet and that he needed one <laughs> and I don't. And that is completely turned around, right? I mean, like right. I love my Excel spreadsheets for just <laughs> keeping track of information and interviews. And I think you know, it's not enough to have banked the interview. It's like, get the transcript written, date and timestamp that, make sure you filed it in a place where you can easily retrieve it. Because, you know, sometimes to, um, I like, to, again, we'll use the SEALs example. It's such a good example. When, when the technical briefing happened, all of the beat reporters, you know, their stories came out within the week. Their stories came out that day. Their stories came out the next day. And, you know, I'm not in a position to do that. I'm not, a, I'm not a beat reporter. Um, and so like, if I'm going to take a longer time trajectory to put something on the page, I need to make it worth it for the reader. What are you going to read today that if you had read, you know, any of the major daily newspapers in, you know, Newfoundland Labrador Labrador, the Atlantic region, when this event happened, um, what are you going to read today that, that makes this worth your while? And so I always try to think about if i'm going to take more time then i want to be able to make sure that i'm adding real value to to the story and the the other thing is is that i've realized it's one thing to be able to relay a story like this to the local audience it's another to be able to relay this to a canadian audience and i i've loved working with editors that aren't from newfoundland labrador or aren't from atlantic canada because they ask questions that you know you may think are obvious and you realize right you know this this is this concept's going to be lost on people so I need to describe it in a new way. So it's turning out to be like a real educational experience for me.
0: (laughs) And a great craft exercise too. Yes. Yeah. What can you put in? What do you have to uh, leave out, et cetera? Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you take us through a typical day in your research? Let's say you're working on a a big piece like this. What does your research day look like?
1: Hmm. Well, if I'm really lucky, like I get to be next week, then... I can be in the field, but of course, you know, that's, that's not always going to be the case, but if I, if I get to be in the field, which a lot of my stories, even now, I mean, field work that I did years ago, I'm still, I'm still drawing on from a, you know, narrative entry point or trying to give a sense of time and place, scene, set, so, you know, on days like that, I've typically got interviews lined up, and um I think journaling and just coming back at the end of the day and doing a bit of a stock take about you know just trying to put on the page anything like not limiting myself but just anything that kind of strikes me that is memorable. I'll put it on the page and I do find that oftentimes those those details that i if I didn't write them down then, I would have just completely lost and forgot often do wind up being really helpful, if anything, just to take me back to the scene, which, you know, now given the last 18, 19 months of having to kind of stay put for the most part because the pandemic proved especially invaluable, but I was doing it because, like I said, when I started the MFA program and really when I started my book, I was six months pregnant. So I just thought, okay, life's going to change. I better take advantage of however much time I have in the field now and really just get all my all my senses working for me, and, and journal, and sketch, and in any way that I can, kind of document and remember, take photographs, you know, record every interview, do that. So nowadays, on a typical day when I'm in my home office, I've got interviews lined up. I'm recording my interviews as soon as the interview's done. I do tend to use a transcription service. Um, I just find it gets it done really quickly. And it also keeps me on task in terms of when I'm doing my interviews, I, I want to make sure that they're purposeful and I'm, I'm asking the right questions and I do leave room for asking my sources, is there anything that, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask you that you, that you think I should, but I try to be really focused. Um, so, cause I'm also thinking about, about budget and, you know, all of these things cost money when you're, when you're availing of things like transcription services. And um, I always work from an outline. I, even, even when I'm pitching at the pitch stage and I haven't yet done all the grunt work, I've, I've got like a general outline. I'm thinking about the lead. I'm thinking about the nut graph. I'm thinking about, you know, how I'm going to get from this section to that section. And then I evolve that as I, as I go. And I have found myself in some circumstances, and I, I don't know if this is a product of like having written a book, but I almost have too much information. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I think that I'm getting better at time. Where, um, you know, if your outline's 2,000 words and your your goal word count is 2,500, you got a problem. <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> well, that's a tip we could all use. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So I'm trying to be more economical in my interviews, economical in my, uh, but still add value, right? Like in my outlines. And I think the other big lesson that I'm, that I'm learning is, you know, the interviews and the quotes, and those are what I think are really helpful as your transition points, because in some ways I'm kind of reconstructing the conversations that I've had, um, while also kind of shedding light on, and this paper tells us this, and this, you know, research paper adds this perspective. Now let's head over to Babel's Newfoundland. Um, so it's a little bit of, uh, Scene reconstruction and and bringing all of these kind of component parts into a into a storyline and just if I can craft a sensible outline from the beginning and do my best to stick with it 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 helps you know it's funny because I can relay that to my like I'm a I do landscape painting as well and I take a similar approach I sketch with pencil I overlay that with ink and I create my palette of colors with oil paint and you know if I like my sketch and I like my oil palette chances are I'm going to like my painting at the end of the day. And and so that preparatory work I think is really important. And I envy the people that can just mix their paint as they go. They don't need to do an underpainting or a sketch. They just go for it. But I realize I'm somebody who I I need structure to, uh, to get to the final products. It, it helps me get
0: there. I believe they call that pantsing versus planning. Is that the right term? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm a planner too. I get it. (laughs) Well,
1: and I heard Michael Crummy in a, um, in a session here at the Ottawa Writers Fest say that, you know, he like writes from beginning to end. And I just thought like, who does that? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Not me. (laughs) No, No, not most people. Yeah, but it it does really, again, it sort of speaks to the way you've treated your craft, that it is a skill and that it is something you're constantly developing and refining and you know has a procedure to it. It has steps. Um, So often we like to think that artistic work of any sort is pantsing it, right? Like just, oh, how do I feel today? I'm going to just throw this down and see how it looks. But that's not it at all. It's really a lot more about technique and practice and skill being repeated over and over again.
1: Absolutely, uh, and i th- I think there's value to like pursuing exercises that you know you just sit down, you just write um, you you know take an object and sort of look at it from different perspectives and and try to think about you know how you would describe that and sort of exercise that move you outside of your comfort zone, but at, at the end of the day, like especially a deadline, nothing I think moves me the way that a deadline does. And <laughs> <laughs> if, you've set a, if you've set a deadline with an editor and they're expecting it on this particular day, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to do your darndest to get it to them. And I, I don't know any other way of getting there with the amount of work that's involved in making that happen than to have a, have a game plan, have an outline.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a wall closing in on you. You've got mm-hmm. to, yeah, yeah. Yes. So how would this differ from researching a bigger project like a book for you? Are they similar or parallel? I
1: think they're similar. I mean, I think I think in my end of one experience in my book project, I I think it came down to sheer volume. I did use an Excel spreadsheet, and I I, I tried to think about the background research as you know paper, the documentation that I was going to have to go through the data. I thought about people I would interview, and I also thought about places that I needed to visit and and do field work and. I, you know, in the same way that I might have a file when I'm developing a story, a long form journalism story, in this case I had an Excel file that helped to lay out all of those component parts of my research. And in the same way that I had an outline for an article, I'm gonna have a table of contents with chapter descriptions for my book. And I I I'm not sure which came first because I was really starting to get back into journalism while i was writing the book so but i so it kind of happened simultaneously that i was i was you know approaching them in a very similar similar way
0: Hmm, that's helpful yeah to have that kind of work driving what you're doing in the bigger project mm-hmm. yeah how about interviewing let's go there for a minute and talk about your interview techniques because so much of cod collapse of course is um Uh, you talking to your family and having to interview perhaps in a way that's different from how you go about it as a journalist, or is it, how do those approaches differ for you?
1: I think it does differ. Certainly. I, I, you know, some of the similarities are I'm going to let people know and, and ask for their approval before I start hitting record. Um, I'll let them know why I'm doing it. So you know, my father, who I probably interviewed most extensively when it comes to my book and and family members, he it's very funny because it got to the point where he was like, Well, are you gonna hit record now? Like I'm about to say something quite important. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that that probably got to a, a unique place that I've never otherwise experienced. But um, you know, setting up the parameters of of why I'm using this, the purpose that it will serve and also what I am promising to offer by way of, of sort of reciprocity or feedback. Like I always feel like when somebody gives you their time that you really owe it back to them to let them know not only at the time, what the intention and purpose is, but then what happened to it. So I like to give people status updates on you know, where the story is at and when's the expected publication date, uh, things like that. I, I have also uh, provided people back quotes for attribution, um, you know, particularly in cases where people were really hesitant. And and the Cod Collapse book is a good example of that because sometimes people are willing to tell you, you know, fishermen are willing to tell you something down on the wharf that if they were in, you know, a room and you're hosting an interview, that and a microphone in their face, like yes, I was holding a recorder, but it didn't have that same, I think, maybe pressure that that some people might feel uh, in an in a different interview setting. So, you know, people might be willing to tell you something on the wharf that they might otherwise have not been able or wanted to tell you, and to not just to allay concerns. That's not the primary purpose why I would share a quote for attribution. It's, it's partly why. The other reason would be is that, you know, I'm a visitor in these worlds. Like, yes, I'm learning a lot more and I have my own family history and tied up in the fishery, but I, I'm a visitor in this person's world. And I want to make sure in my attempt to summarize and, and relay that I haven't misconstrued or or taken out of context, and so sometimes I might share the quote with a little bit more background. For example, um, you know, I haven't had anyone ever tell me they didn't want to be interviewed at all, uh, because I think the other thing that I can do is relay examples of my work. Or in in meeting with me, I can also relay why this matters to me. So I have had some people at the beginning of an interview sort of say like, "Why are you doing this? Like, why do you care so much?" Um, and I think that's helped too when I've interviewed different people who I don't know because in some ways when you're interviewing your family members, they know who you are um and in this case, I was relaying things about our shared family history that we all were really interested to delve back into and share and I can imagine in other circumstances, people you know interviewing family members and them not wanting to share particular details you know I wasn't in that that kind of sticky situation whereas You know, otherwise I'm interviewing people who I don't yet know yet. I don't yet have a rapport and I'm building my rapport when I'm setting up the interview and when I'm actually conducting the interview and then in that follow up. So there's I think there's tricky, tricky needs and demands, whether it's a family member or whether it's someone you actually haven't met ever before.
0: I am fascinated by the fact that you haven't had interview hesitancy or resistance yet Especially with the the fraught subjects you're dealing with, that's just fascinating to me
1: it's not that it's not that people haven't been hesitant, but I've never had anyone downright decline an interview
0: so how do you convince them
1: well, so a good example of this is I did have one interview subject in my book who, upon meeting him and there's a bit of a backstory to this, but you know he says to me something along the lines of you know what makes you a writer um And I was a bit thrown by that. And so I was trying to think about like, okay, how do I, how do I address this? And I think I'd said something like, oh, that's, that's a good question. And and he quips back with, well, you know, shouldn't any good interview start with one? And I was just really like flummoxed by that. So I kind of just stepped back and just said, okay, I gotta, I gotta relay what this is about and just take a couple steps back. Because even though, you know, at an earlier date and time, this man agreed to do an interview with me. Here we are meeting face to face It's the first time we're meeting face to face like I said, there was a bit of a backstory because I had uh, been up in his area, but for you know cell phone coverage reasons and everything else, there'd been a couple of days where I was just like off the grid and we, we couldn't be in touch with each other and um, I ended up just having to go knock on his front door and we were able to connect and meet and a lot of people that that is how they meet. you just happen to be in the right place at the right time and boom, you connect. but I needed to very quickly, uh, share with him the reasons why I was doing this work, where it was going to go, why I was the right person to do it. And I just kind of laid it out there. And I remember I, you know, teared up doing it. And at the, at the end of that conversation, he says to me, like, do you want a piece of jam bread? Right. So he gets out a piece of homemade bread and slathers it with homemade jam. And I was like, yes, for God's sakes, give me that jam bread peace offering and let's start over.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, but it it can be really awkward and really trying on you as the interviewer to encounter that kind of resistance. Yes, absolutely. And I mean,
1: what, what does qualify me as a writer, right? Like that, this is, it's one, especially at, at the time when he asked me that like you know i didn 't have a book to my name, I didn 't have a byline in the globe and mail i there was the best was still I think yet to come, and so it was a good question. He wanted to know i think more deeply like what was what were my intentions and how was I going to use this information because here I was in what is the most most northerly part of Newfoundland, the island portion of Newfoundland. And you've got a lot of people who pass through. They've passed through once and they never come back. Um, you know, people are accustomed to the term of helicopter research, swooping in, gathering information, and boom, you're gone. And I think in a place like that where I didn't have family connections, he wanted to have some assurances around how I was going to use this information and, and why it was worthy of his time.
0: Yeah, well, that's fair. Yeah. So when you write about um, – this community, you know, what struck me just in in sort of getting into your book was that you're writing about loss. And so often we think of loss as being connected to a person or people that you're writing about grief in, in your personal relationships. But in fact, the loss you're writing about here is a loss of livelihood, and then a loss of community, and then a loss of place sort of happening one after the other. And so, you know, that is such deep sadness to have to access and convey on the page how did you think about that from a craft perspective
1: i i wish i had a a really thoughtful answer to this but you know it's interesting because i when i was writing the book i was experiencing loss and i think the book while it covered a different subject Became a place where I could in some ways I think come to terms with that so just to put that in context, like my father was was dying while I was writing the book and he passed away about six months before the book was was published and it was also around that time and just before I'd started the mFA program that i'd you know had failed attempts at pregnancy and i'd had a failed a failed pregnancy and mm-hmm it hasn't really been until now that i started to think about i was experiencing a lot of loss so i didn't need to spend a lot of time stewing on loss because i was living loss and i think what helped me to kind of access ways of relaying that was the field work too because it wasn't so much what I was seeing at what I it was what I wasn't seeing. So in you know, pick any of the communities that I that I visited and when you heard people talk about the way that it once was, and you know, children darting in and out of the the bay and, and playing games around the wharf and people splitting and cleaning the fish on the wharf and an active fishing port and seagulls you know, flying overhead and dogs barking and moms calling for kids to come home for dinner and then supper. And, you know, you'd go into some of these communities and you're like, well, where are all the people? Like there's, in some cases, I talked to the last, the one or two remaining inshore fishers in those communities, and they weren't planning to pass their enterprises on to anyone else. So it was in some ways just relaying exactly what I saw. And I I don't think it was until I was really in the book that I realized the loss. Yes, there was there was people, and I was experiencing some of that as I was writing because you know the people closest to me, like my father, who could relay to me this history, soon were not going to be able to do that. I'd only just lost an uncle, my father's brother, the the year before all of that had happened, and he was the last remaining relative that we'd had living in the community where my father grew up, the fishing community of Little bay east it, it was it was also i think i realized that in in losing that connection to people that you also learn you lost the tacit knowledge you you lost the ability to sort of link back to a way of life and that was one thing but i think as i dug into the stories of my family members and and interviewees and other characters from the book realizing that They'd also lost, you know, an entire livelihood. Um, I think it just wound up being the main focus of a lot of our conversations because now, you know, 25, now 30, next year marks 30 years since the COD moratorium. You, you just start to ask yourself, well, well, what did we gain from all that loss? Like, Have we, have we learned effectively the lessons? And sadly, the answer is no.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it was kind of coming to terms with the loss, but also look we 're at a we 're at now another milestone where we we could and should and ought to and must learn from this history because at the very least we don 't want to repeat it um but we also i think want to be able to 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 honor that which we came from and so at the very beginning of the book, which i I wrote the preface last i and without even realizing it, it just seemed like the place to start. I, I talked about being outside of the fence of my father's family home because we had just sold the home for 14,000 Canadian dollars, which, you know, you can't even buy a parking space in most Canadian cities for that Price and this was like an oceanfront property that only Thornhills had had lived in on the Buren Peninsula in Newfoundland and Labrador, and that sense of kind of being outside of this this physical structure and connection to place that was no longer mine, um, I think set up then for the for the rest of the book the that kind of loss that was to come. But but I hope in in the course of the structure of the book where we kind of move from those roots and that that loss of place and purpose and livelihood and, and sense of self and identity that later in the book, when I get to the section on revival, I, I was really trying to think about what can I do? And, and also the people that I, I was talking to, they were sharing what can they do to course correct? Um, and so I talked to a lot of people who had great ideas about what the future of fisheries in newfoundland labrador could look like
0: wow jen (laughs) you've kind of left me speechless uh thinking about all this and and i do want to say i'm so sorry that you experienced all of this personal loss in the process of of writing the book um but on on sort of on the page, I think it's so beautiful and wonderful that you captured this at a moment when you still had a chance to and that you were able to share that with us. It, it meant a lot to me as someone of the same generation and who's thinking about a lot of these things in similar ways. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful that that is there for us to be part of. Thank you for
1: saying that. And you know, it's so interesting because when I first wrote the table of contents and sort of conceived of the book, I wasn't planning on being a part of it. Hmm. And I, you know, i had that conversation with my mentor, and we were that was a difficult conversation to have because here my father was gravely ill, and we were having conversations about, well, is that germane to the story? And, you know, of course there's a party that's like, well, it's germane to everything.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: I but I really thought, no, it's not germane to the story. Like this is a book about the East Coast cod fishery collapse and that's what I want to focus on. And, you know, this has got to be about fishing. And I'd, I'd taken a workshop with a, a few writers and, and, and they would they'd agreed that, you know, that there were parts about my personal memoir that weren't part of the story later when I secured the publisher and they had picked it up after I'd written a piece that did include some, some um, story about my own family's life alongside the uh, sort of historical nonfiction and narrative nonfiction of other characters, the publisher felt, well, no, you've got to be in this story. Like you're the person that you're the character that's going to connect this story from page to page. And I was really reluctant to do that. And I, I was reluctant to, to bring in that which was happening to me right at that time, because I just thought like, do, is the, is my perspective here? Like, am I, do I have enough perspective to be able to, relay that which I'm living right now. And, you know, in the end, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did it because I don't think I could have understand and appreciated the loss of those who did lose their livelihood overnight when the COD moratorium happened. I don't think I could have sort of relayed those sentiments without experiencing it myself in a, in a, you know, in a different fashion, in a different way. But I think the weight of it was, was important, and in the end, it felt like a way that I could honor this story from a from a personal standpoint, but also, um, you know, thinking about this province in my home of Newfoundland and Labrador.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And we are with you through that whole story. We just feel like we're walking right beside you as the reader. So you have some very intriguing sounding craft writing tips for us? I think so and
1: I'm riffing off of an idea that Margaret Atwood gave me and I had an awesome opportunity to meet her at a nature writing workshop while I was writing my book and she had read a sample of Cod Collapse and so in the passage that she'd read I was describing the then and now of my father's hometown and so she had said but what does it smell like? And I thought that was such an insightful question because I hadn't, you know, considered that the community, like it didn't have that distinct smell that goes along with an active fishing wharf. You know, no fishing meant no cleaning the fish on the wharf and drawing the fish on the flakes. So there just wasn't that fishy smell. And I, she told me that at a really important time because I still had field work left to do. So I was able to, while I was in the field, kind of tap into my senses. So I thought, okay, what about if I crafted some tips about tapping into your senses and maybe not for the obvious reason, but to really show and share emotion. So starting with that idea of, you know, tip one, ask yourself, what does it smell and taste like? I I do think smell and taste are comparatively they're less used in writing than sight or hearing. And I think at least in the literal uh, function, but, you know, describing something as like fresh or sour, like it can really hint at the mood or the tone. And I've lumped smell and taste there together because I think they both, they just both comparatively are less often relied upon. And I was thinking about another example from my book where when it comes to taste, it wasn't so much that I was trying to really flavor, but I had talked about my sister and I road tripping up to the Northern Peninsula. And on the way we stopped and we dropped into a convenience store and we picked up some of these candies that we'd remembered from our youth. And I described them as tasting like childhood. And I thought, (laughs) regardless of what the flavor was, like people will be able to remember that thing that tastes like childhood. And so it was a way of being able to relay the spirit of that, um, in, in maybe a less obvious way. So tip two is what does it sound like? And again, I had to struggle in the book because of course, Newfoundland Labrador is a richness of accents and dialects. And I had to think really hard about how I was going to, or if I was going to relay that, you know, phonetically and so forth. And in some cases I, I, I did, it came across, I think in, in the direct quotes that I'd received from, from people, but it, It also forced me to think about how to relay that accent. And so there's a scene near the in the first section of the book where fishermen are down on the wharf and they're learning from the federal fisheries minister John Crosby at the time that the fisheries, the cod fisheries will be closed. And so I describe that as rage honing the edges of their accent. And and again, you know, I didn't go into the detail of the accent. You see it in the the actual uh, dialogue that takes place but again I thought people can relate to that that um, you know when people their emotions are fired up I think if, if they do have accents they become even more recognizable at the heights of of emotion third tip is thinking about what does it look like and An example I'll use for that is I I periodically talk about clutter. My dad seemed to hang on to everything. And we used to joke growing up that we were kind of like the hillbillies of our area in Cornerbrook, that we always had a garage that was just filled to capacity with doodads and trinkets. And that, I think, was a nod to dad's life growing up in Outport, Newfoundland, where people do have sheds full of what on the surface may look like junk, but in the outport, when you can't dart to the hardware store, this trinket or doodad, it's going to be able to save you in a pinch. So, you know, I just started to be able to see things differently when I, when I started using my eyes, a washer drum was reincarnated as a fire pit or salt beef buckets were reincarnated for berry picking tubs. So I think looking deeply helped me to see purpose. This wasn't junk. This was this was how people lived. Tip four is, what does it feel like? And I'm trying to tap into that touch and, and sentiment there. And the example I'll use is I was, because I drive and go from location to location throughout the book, I talk about the twists and turns and the nooks and crannies of the roads in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly those that are right on the, the coastal outports and you know describing that is one thing but there was a phrase that came to mind when i was thinking about what does it feel like and i described one of those roads as an upset stomach waiting to happen <laughs> 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 and i could have described it i think as a roller coaster because it did feel a little bit like that but it was it was more the ooh your stomach is kind of in your throat and again i thought this is a way that whether or not you've been there you probably have a comparable experience that you can think about and then finally, tip five is, you know, just generally spend time with your senses in the field. I try to keep a journal. I sketch. So if you see my my journal, I have sketches and landscapes. I think, you know, you can learn a lot by tapping into your five senses and there's kind of an entire world that's hidden beneath the surface. And if you can, Spend some time, you know, even in your journal, just saying, well, what did it smell like? Or, you know, think about what that question is for you that will allow you to dig a little bit deeper, help you enhance the way you understand the world around you. And I think ultimately that's going to translate into better writing.
0: Wonderful. Such great tips. Thank you so much. We forget about our senses when we're writing all the time. So uh, it's going to be a really good reminder to everyone listening. Thank you. Jen, it was so lovely to talk to you. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. It was just wonderful. Uh, thank you for giving us your time and your knowledge and just your generosity as as a writer is unparalleled. I, I loved our conversation.
1: Thank you. I really loved it as well. And I love being able to dig back into some of that recent past and uh, think about you know how much has happened over the course of these few years and you know it's funny because I don't tend to think about this work as you know the craft of writing and but it is it, it it is and I'm I'm learning and I'm constantly learning and you know I like everyone else makes rookie mistakes but it's nice to be able to kind of reflect on what you've learned and where you're going to go next. And if it weren't for opportunities like this, you probably wouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) There you go.
0: (laughs) Well, you're a fantastic storyteller and and it just makes all of us want to hang out with you. So today was no exception to that. And, And thank you again. Thank
1: you so much. I really appreciate it, Jillian.
0: If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash mfa. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Jen Thornhill-Verma for talking to us. Her latest book, Odd Collapse, The Rise and Fall of Newfoundland's Saltwater Cowboys is available from Nimbus. Further reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA program in creative nonfiction. Our editor is Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.